This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. How are you this week? You know, it's been a while since I've asked you how you're feeling, and I want to apologize for that. Our time together means so much to me. I hope your autumn is off to a great start. Lately, I've been told by a lot of you that you like to listen while you go on evening walks, and that sounds incredibly lovely. I wish I could go with you. Well, I guess I sort of do. Anyway, stay safe out there while listening to my creepy stories. I don't want any real creeps to come out and bother you. Quick update from my Haunted Castles episode. I had some friends stay with me this week from Scotland, and they very politely informed me that I had pronounced a few castles wrong. To my Irish listeners, which actually, I'm not sure if I have any listeners in Ireland. I know I have quite a few in the UK, but specifically, I don't know if I have any in Ireland. I hope you got a good laugh at me saying Leap Castle. I have since learned that it's pronounced Lep Castle. Also, you know, this one I still can't pronounce. I say Hermitage. That's what I said in the episode. It's a castle in Scotland, and I believe it's actually... Hermitage? Ooh, my friend Christina sounded much better saying it with her accent, so I will just leave that one alone. I apologize, UK listeners. I hope I at least left you with a giggle at the American lady who completely butchered all those names over and over again. Now that we're getting closer to Halloween, I wanted to do something sort of special. Have you ever played the game Two Truths and a Lie? Well, tonight I'm going to tell you two lies and a truth. I have two scary Halloween-themed stories, along with one true crime story that took place around Halloween. The first story of the night is by Reddit user Not Your Cure, and it's called Don't House Sit on Halloween. October 1998 house sitter wanted for Halloween weekend. We are looking for a house sitter for this coming weekend, as we will be out of town. House is a two-story colonial, four bedrooms, two baths, in-ground swimming pool, heated, out back. Sitter would also have to feed our two cats, Sid and Freddy, and water my wife's plants. We have TV and a computer in the den. Non-smoker preferable. House is a bit out of the way. Feel free to sleep over. Call number listed below if interested. 
I was staring at the number when Michael set his glass down a little too hard and slopped milk all over the newspaper. Watch it, I said without looking up, mopping at the spill with the sleeve of my shirt. Really, Amy, were you born in a barn? My stepmother, Lori, sighed. Yeah, shame you weren't there. I took a thoughtful bite of my toast, ignoring the constant crinkling sound of Michael methodically emptying every last bit of cereal into his bowl. Enough with the attitude, my dad said distractedly as he fiddled with the kitchen radio. You see that house-sitting ad? Why didn't you give him a call, Ames? Get you out this weekend. I had been planning to do just that, but now that he'd suggested it, I would have preferred to do literally anything else. I don't know, I said cagily. I might be going to Joe's thing. Oh, Joe's thing. Michael said in a high-pitched Looney Tunes voice only a 12-year-old could make properly grating, and I scowled at him briefly. Dad glanced over at me and frowned. I thought you two broke up. I shrugged as if it was debatable, when it really wasn't. I didn't have any serious intention of going to my ex's Halloween bash. I just wanted to drag my feet about this house-sitting thing, now that he'd mentioned it. Well, you could certainly use the cash, Lori said a little too brightly. That store pays you practically nothing. And since you never ask for overtime... Jesus Christ, I'm calling them, alright? I muttered. Getting up from the table and shoving my chair back, I stalked over to the kitchen phone, dialed the number, and made faces at my family while I listened to it ring. I was about to hang up and declare it a lost cause when a woman picked up. From her voice, I got the image of a perky perm, a spray tan, and affairs with a tennis coach. Hi, she sang. This is Misty. Are you calling about the ad? Yes, I said, a little off-put by her cheeriness. It was only nine in the morning. Yeah, I am. My name's Amy. I can be there at 10 a.m. on Saturday. How much? A hundred dollars a night, she said, rapid fire. And I blinked in surprise on the other end. Two hundred dollars for two days of house-sitting? And all they wanted me to do was feed the cats and water the plants? I wasn't about to argue with that. Yeah, okay, I nodded enthusiastically, even though she couldn't see me. Uh Uh-huh, see you then, Misty. Thanks a bunch, chickadee, she chirped and hung up. The chickadee thing would have come across as patronizing at best, had she not sounded so earnest. Hundred bucks a night, I informed Dad a little too smugly, as if the whole thing had really been my idea all along. He nodded in approval. What'd I tell you? Hey, it'll be like a little vacation. Big house to yourself, heated pool. I'd tell you to invite some friends over <laughs> if I didn't know better. He snorted. Nah, I said, examining the milk stain on my sleeve. I could use a little me time. It was a real pain in the ass to find the stupid house. I got turned around three times before I found the right road. One of those private ones with the little signs at the turn. And I winced every time my car went over a bump. It was mostly gravel. The house was pretty, though. Set back in the woods with a sprawling front yard and a clean paint job. Whoever did their landscaping was probably making a ton. I parked in the wide driveway and started up the walk, 
when the door opened and a middle-aged couple came bustling out, luggage and all. You must be Amy, the woman said. She looked like a brunette Farrah Fawcett with a sunny smile and taut skin. The man was more average looking, balding with a bit of a gut and a sober expression compared to his wife. He gave me a curt nod as Misty rambled on about the cats and her plants. And the upstairs creaks a lot, she continued. It's just the house settling in. Used to scare me all the time when we first moved in. This place was a real fixer-upper, wasn't it, Ted? Ted grunted an acknowledgement. I didn't like the way he was looking at me. Not like he was leering at a grungy community college dropout in flannel and acid-washed jeans, but like he was judging me or something. I settled into a solidly working-class glower, and he averted his eyes as if slightly ashamed. We should get on the road, Misty. Of course. <laughs> she pressed an envelope into my hands. Enjoy your stay, chickadee. I waited until they were pulling out of the driveway to rifle through my small fortune, before shoving the money into my backpack and stepping inside the house. It was a little too brutalist, modern, decorated for my personal taste, but I wasn't here to give them a makeover. I walked through the rooms once, poking my head in the closets and drawers like the voyeur we all secretly are, and gave the pool an appreciative once-over. I hadn't brought a bathing suit, but that never stopped me before. I was kind of surprised they'd paid me beforehand. What if I trashed the place? I'd never thought of myself as coming across as the responsible type before, but there was a first time for everything. I went on a hunt for the cats, which took me the better part of an hour, and finally found one in the laundry room in the basement and the other in the den, on the desk chair. I was more of a dog person, but they looked fat and lazy, so I didn't think they'd be much of an issue. Then I poked around a bit more, trying to piece together what Misty and Ted were like. As far as I could tell, they had a kid, or at least Misty had a kid, judging by the family photos downstairs. It looked like Ted was the stepdad in the scenario. He seemed like the type. Judging again by the photos, the kid was more of a man now, probably at weight some nice college like everyone else I'd gone to high school with. Meanwhile, I was firmly settling into the role of disaffected townie who bagged old people's groceries at the supermarket and spent my free time getting high with Joe and his friends. At least until he knocked up Melanie. I really wasn't interested in being with a guy who was going to spend the next 18 years skipping out on child support and passing his kid off on his mom. Besides the fact that he cheated on me with a former cheerleader who used to throw shit at us at lunch. <sighs> I made myself lunch in their somewhat sterile-feeling kitchen, ignored the occasional creak from upstairs, and watched television for the next few hours. One of the cats, Freddy, I think, wandered into the living room at one point and took the armchair across from me. We ignored each other in comfortable silence. I actually dozed off at some point. Or I must have, because when I woke up again, it was dark enough outside to warrant turning on some lights, and Freddy was gone. I turned off the TV and flicked on the lights in the living room and kitchen. I hadn't realized how quickly it seemed to get dark out here in the sticks, with no streetlights or traffic. The only sound outside was the wind and the trees. They probably didn't get many trick-or-treaters, if any. I hadn't really noticed any Halloween decorations besides a small pumpkin on the porch. And they hadn't said anything to me about handing out candy. Besides, there were no cars in the driveway, and I wasn't turning on the porch light. People would probably assume no one was home, which was just how I liked it. 
Maybe I should have been a little nervous at being in a strange house by myself at night, but I've never really been a paranoid person, and I reasoned that I'd been way more likely to get into a car accident on the way here than of getting into some kind of trouble out here. They probably didn't even lock up at night. You'd have to really be looking for this house to find it. But maybe I should have brought a book or something because I was beginning to get bored, even though my work was almost half done. I ignored the growling of my stomach again and stumbled upon a record player in the hall. Smiling, I rifled through their musical selection. Ted clearly had varied taste and pulled out Born in the USA. My dad used to listen to this with my mom all the time when I was a kid. I didn't even like Springsteen all that much. It was 98. I was more into garbage, but it was worth it for the nostalgia alone. At the very least, their house had good acoustics. Bopping a little, I swayed into the kitchen and rooted through their fridge, coming up with a bottle of Merlot. Might as well live the high life while I was here, right? I poured myself a glass, Misty probably wouldn't mind, and stepped out into the back porch, staring into the tree line. I wandered over to the pool and, after some debate, took off my jeans and sat in my underwear on the concrete, dangling my legs in the warm water and rubbing up the goosebumps on the back of my neck. The music sounded strained and warbly, filtering through the ajar back door. I kind of liked it. I took another sip of my wine and leaned my head back, closing my eyes and pretending I was some sophisticated socialite, married to a famous actor in some meaningful state like New York or California, enjoying the peace and serenity of our multi-million dollar mansion before hosting a soiree or whatever rich people did. The record cut out suddenly, and I opened my eyes, the spell broken. Muttering to myself, I swung my legs up and out of the pool and plucked up my jeans, padding barefoot into the house. Probably one of the stupid cats messing around with shit. I elbowed the door open as I clumsily tried to put my jeans back on. My legs were shaking from the chill now, and I was all too lazy to get out the change of clothes I'd brought with me. When I caught the sight of the record player, it hadn't just stopped. The record had been taken off it entirely and was sitting beside it. What the fuck? I said aloud and slipped on the tile floor, which was wet from pool water. Gripping onto the kitchen counter, I looked around wildly and locked eyes with the man standing by the pantry. Or I would have had he not been wearing a mask. I don't know what the mask was, some kind of skull or zombie or demon, because I was too busy screaming loudly, letting go of the counter and darting for the still open back door. I promptly tripped over my own half-on jeans, kicking them off frantically and was scrambling for the porch when a gloved hand closed around the back of my neck, hauled me completely off my feet, and shoved me backwards into the stovetop. I slid limply to the floor in shock. It's Halloween, he said, speaking in a fairly normal tone, as if we were just having a little chat at the kitchen island. I want to play a game. You're going to hide, and I'm going to find you, okay? Fuck you, I said breathlessly, too surprised to be terrified and made a run for the hall since he was blocking the back door. 
The front door was locked, just how I'd left it, and quickly realized I didn't have time to unlock it with him in pursuit. Instead, I changed course and raced upstairs, like every idiot in a horror movie. I could hear him suppressing laughter as he followed. He was probably getting off on this or something, like some bad porno. Well, I had other plans. I raced into the bathroom, slamming the door behind me and locking it, and began rummaging through the drawers until I came up with a pair of scissors. The doorknob jiggled. Don't worry, he said. I'll wait. We've got all night, bitch. I clicked the scissors experimentally in response, then stepped back and glanced at the shower curtain. He slammed his shoulder into the door as I ripped it off the rock. Wood splintered, and I heard him rear back to try again, breathing harshly. I unlocked the door and yanked it open as he surged forward, throwing the curtain in his face and driving the scissors into his pants leg. He screamed, and I pulled them back out as I rushed past him and into the hall. That should slow him down. Maybe. I was nearing the bottom of the stairs when he charged after me, knocking us both to the floor of the foyer, tracking blood across the pristine carpeting. I was going to be nice about it, Amy. He got both hands around my neck as I tried to contort my legs up enough to knee him in the groin. But he had to fucking play hard to get. Just like they all do. I was seeing spots. But I didn't need to see to send the scissors up under his chin. He gurgled, and his grip loosened considerably. I struggled out from underneath him, knocking off the mask in the process and backed away grabbing a potted plant from a side table, which I slammed down over his head, sending Misty's precious ivy all over the floor. He sagged and struggled to stand, pawing at his face, before I hit him again, and he collapsed. What I could make out of his bloody face looked vaguely familiar. I stood there for a moment, panting, waiting to see if he was getting up anytime soon. When he didn't move, I limped over to the door and unlocked it, but not before studying his face for a moment. I wondered if this was the first time Misty and Ted had set up some girl to be a little weekend fun for their psychotic frat boy son. I sort of doubted it. I closed the door after me so the cats wouldn't get out, and set off in search of a neighbor with a landline and a pair of goddamn pants. This next story I'm very excited to share with you because it was written by my husband, James Scott. I'm just so stoked. He's a great writer. He doesn't write horror very often. And when he showed me this one, he sent it to me and I was just, oh my God, it's really good and scary. And it gave me the heebie-jeebies while I was recording. I have to be honest. <laughs> All right, you guys, this is The Visitor. You know, one thing I've always struggled with is finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. Plus, I am not the best with numbers. But now, 
I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. And I know you do not have the time or mental bandwidth to deal with customer service, but don't worry, they'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. That's rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. Rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. Thurmond, West Virginia, as it is today, is a very different town than Thurmond in the early 1900s. What was once a booming Appalachian coal hub is now a ghost town. The post office discontinued service to Thurmond in 1995, and the old railroad depot that used to bustle miners in and out by the dozens now serves as the welcome center for the New River Gorge National River. There are many theories as to what caused the town to collapse. The mine went bust, and the depression added a crushing blow. But if you ask the locals, they say the nail in the coffin was the mysterious fire in 1930 that burned down the 100-room Hotel Dun Glen, killing everyone inside. By that time, the Dun Glen had become the typical seedy mine town brothel, fronting as a legitimate hotel. It had become famous during a 14-year-long, never-ending poker game. That's probably why, when it burned down, there was never a very thorough investigation. But, recently, the bizarre murder of one of the town's remaining seven residents has opened an investigation that has unearthed new evidence. At 3.44 a.m. on October 31st, The Fayette County Sheriff's Department received a 911 call. The caller was Thurman native Boyce Whitford. Here is a recording of that call. 911, what is your emergency? I did it. Right in the middle of the old Dunklin, like you said. I had to. I had to stop the visit. I couldn't take it anymore. Sir, stay calm and tell me what's happening. I didn't start the fire. It was him who done that. I just took him there. I had to do it. Or he would never stop coming back. Stay where you are. I can't sleep. I can't eat. Half the time I don't even know where I am or what I'm doing. I have officers on the way. Police arrived on the scene at the Dun Glen. 
It was pitch black except for the glowing embers of John Durian's charred remains. The fire had burned a perfect circle around John. Scorch marks on the rubble around him looked like the flames had somehow blasted from the earth underneath him. Boyce was standing nearby, motionless in the darkness, staring at the scorched ground. He just kept repeating that he had to do it. Minutes later, Boyce's common-law wife, Mary Whitford, showed up to the scene. While they were reading a handcuffed Boyce his rights, she was telling the officers that Boyce was a totally normal man. Until recently. He had developed night terrors, began sleepwalking. Sometimes she'd find him in the living room, sometimes sweating through his pajamas and staring off into a corner, singing something to himself. While gathering evidence on the site, CSI found the following journal in some of the rubble. It was remarkably preserved. The lab says it must have been somewhere airtight. July 25th, 1930. Well, it's official. I've gone mad. I feel I should document this due to an overwhelming sense of doom. I've been having night terrors, night after night. I'm currently living at the Dunglen Hotel, and my neighbors grow tired of my screaming. I think the mind must be getting to me. I've been seeing things down there that I don't think are really there. Faces in the darkness, eyes looking at me. The nightmares and hallucinations grow stronger the deeper we dig. Every night it's the same thing. I'm awake, but it's only a dream. The room has a heavy heat over it, and I'm sweating through my bedclothes. My eyes are wide open, but I cannot move. A big shadowy figure stands in the darkest corner of the room. Its eyes glow red. It never moves. It just stands there, whispering something. I cannot make out what it is saying, but my body begins to convulse something fierce. I awake at the same time every night, screaming. You could set your watch to it. 3.15 a.m. I hope this mine is done soon, so I can get out of here and escape whatever it is that haunts this place. August 1st. Deeper, we dig. Down into the hot earth. The heat is beginning to make everyone else go mad as well. Sometimes a man will just collapse and we have to drag him out. The visitor in my nightmares is relentlessly on time every night. Last night, it stepped a little closer to my bed. When it moved, it sounded like heavy hooves. The heat seemed to be emanating from it getting closer 
and hotter. He whispered a little louder this time. I could almost make out what he was saying and could see its giant silhouette standing in the corner. He seemed to be chanting something over and over, and my body convulsed so violently that I sat straight up in my bed. That's when I woke up screaming again. I hope he leaves me be soon. I greatly fear where this is going. August 4th. We lost some good men today to that pit of hell. We were digging into an especially dense part of the mine when out of nowhere. A ball of fire erupted from where a man struck it with a pick. It came with such force that I doubt the men even realized what happened before they were completely burned. We're not sure where it came from, but the heat was tremendous, and the mine filled with the smell of rotten eggs. This comes after my visit last night. This time was different. The hooves stepped close enough to the bed where I could make out a face. Its eyes are big, sunken, and black set onto a boar-like face with tusks and giant horns atop its head that almost touches the ceiling. It has long, ghoulish fingers on the end of sinewy, almost skeletal arms. It stood near the foot of my bed, chanting again. This time it was loud enough to hear and I realized it was also coming from my own mouth. I began to stand up from the pool of sweat I had left on the bed, but not because of my own volition. I was being commanded, like a puppet. I turned towards the beast and began walking towards it. Its bony arms spread to embrace me. That's when I woke up, screaming again. This time, I was standing in the middle of the room. I'm beginning to think these aren't just dreams. August 20th. It's been some time since I've documented anything. I've been... Losing track of time, and try to only sleep when my body gives out in hopes that I can avoid the beast for as long as possible. I began losing myself, forgetting things that happened during the day. By now, entire days go unaccounted for. I can't tell what's real and what's not anymore, and chanting from my nightmares is always in the back of my head, like a buzzing bee that I cannot swat. I see the beast sometimes in the mines now, and 
the visits have only grown more terrifying. Last night, I awoke at 3 a.m. again. When I opened my eyes, the visitor was standing right above my bed, face to face with me, its eyes staring through mine, its sulfuric breath hot on my body. The heat was almost unbearable. I could feel my skin sizzling. The chanting grew louder and louder from both of us. As I looked deep into its black eyes, I could see fire burning from behind them. I rose up straight from the bed onto my feet. My sweaty body stiff as a board. I felt as though the beast and I had become one. Like it was somehow in me, controlling my every move. I've never been a religious man, but I think it might be time to find an exorcist. It seems that it wants to use me for something evil. August 27th. I have to sleep, but it won't let me. Woke up standing in the hallway, babbling about setting a fire. Maybe burn the beast. Maybe sleep. Its eyes are everywhere. I hear the hooves behind me, watching over my bed. The goddamned heat. Fire. Only way. August 25th. 1930. Resistance is for the weak. The gates of the nether will only open for the willing. I will do the king's bidding. Fire must cleanse this ground and make way for the new regime. The day the last journal entry was written was the day the deadly fire burned down the hotel. I arrived with the construction crew a few weeks ago. After this case went national, some bigwig up north realized that there was a whole plot of land that cost practically nothing that was just up for grabs, complete with a mine that had never quite been tapped dry. We're here to put up cheap lodgings for the new miners that will be coming into town as soon as all the permits to begin digging again go through. After the case was closed, the diary was released to the Welcome Center. There's nothing to do in this godforsaken town, so I moseyed on over to read it on one of my off days. Like the man in the journal, I've never been particularly religious myself, but it had me absentmindedly reciting old prayers from Sunday school and looking over my shoulder. It started with the smell of rotten eggs. I chalked it up to my boredom, leading to an overactive imagination. It was kind of fun, actually. 
being scared just like when you were a kid having just watched your first horror movie. (laughs) Yeah. It was kind of fun. Until now. It's currently 3.17am according to those glowing red numbers on the nightstand in my motel room. I'm sharing a room with another guy from the crew. He was out late at a bar in the town over. He said he opened the door and, well, I must have slept walked because he found me standing in the middle of the room, screaming. segment of the evening, I'm going to tell you about Patricia Ward and her son Derek. Patricia Ward had worked as a language arts professor at Farmingdale State College for 28 years. A spokesperson for the school described Patricia as well-liked, well-known, and well-respected. Derek, her son, lived with her. He was unemployed, and according to Reverend Robert Lubano, who was Patricia's brother, Derek suffered from an indisclosed mental illness that was left untreated. I found a few sources who seemed to list different diagnoses, but I couldn't find any confirmation and I don't want to speculate. Derek's uncle mentioned to the press that Derek had been having a very difficult time finding proper treatment for his mental illness, stating, He never raised his hand to her before this, never had a gun. This is all about mental illness and the difficulty of getting a psychiatrist. While I do agree with the fact that mental health is very undertreated in this country and it's not something that our government makes a priority, Derek did have a bit of a criminal past. In 2003, he was convicted of criminal mischief. I'm not sure of the details, but the judge fined Derek and placed him on probation for a year. I don't know how much the fine was either. In 2006, he was arrested for possession of drugs and a 9mm handgun. That time, he was handed jail time, 45 days of it, and three years of probation. I'm not sure if his uncle just wasn't aware of that charge or, you know, he was grieving. Who knows? That statement was probably not a lie, but just something that he kind of said in grief about his nephew and the loss of his sister. On October 28, 2014, just days before Halloween, Derek attacked his mother with a kitchen knife. He stabbed her several times and then proceeded to use that same kitchen knife to decapitate her. Derek dragged the head and the body down the stairs of their apartment building, through the lobby, and into the street. A neighbor drove by and witnessed him carrying the body, They assumed it was just a morbid Halloween decoration, saying that there wasn't a ton of blood and, of course, it was also the perfect time of year. The witness did describe one thing that, while creepy at the time, was so much more terrifying later when it was discovered that this was not just some Halloween decor. Derek walked up to the decapitated head of his mother and proceeded to kick it hard and it rolled 20 feet down the road. Derek wasn't done for the night. 
He then walked a mile to the closest set of train tracks, where he waited until a train came speeding by, traveling east from Penn Station. He jumped in front of it, and he died instantly. The connection between this mysterious man who committed suicide by train and the headless woman in the middle of the road was not immediately apparent. It took a while to identify both bodies and the condition they were in. I wish I had more information for you, but there seems to be more questions than answers for this one. The only person who could ever tell us why took those answers with him when he jumped in front of that train. That concludes this week's Halloween true crime tale. I suggest giving your neighbor's Halloween decorations a quick poke, just to be sure they aren't real. Thanks for listening. I hope you're having a great week, and if you aren't, then I hope this will at least help you relax for a little while. Thank you to my latest Patreon subscribers, Lisa Fidel and Casey Schuin. I hope I pronounced that right. Please let me know. I really, really hope I did, and I'm so sorry if I didn't. Well, I hope you can feel this big warm hug I am sending both of you. Thank you so much for the support. I can't tell you how much it means to me. If you have a story you'd like considered for the show, please send it to scarytosleep at gmail.com. You can follow the show's updates on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Reddit, and Facebook. Remember, by supporting my sponsors and using my offer codes, you're supporting me and the show. I think that's all for now. Go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Item number SCP-5186 SCP-7160 SCP-7533 Object class Euclid Keter Safe Special containment procedures Spreading across the hemisphere and kicking up vast amounts of ash and dust <laughs> The only thing I could hear was 7219 <laughs> laughing Do you remember your name? Counseling. Appointment update. I feel them again. Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. They're in my ears! Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. Nobody understands! SCP Archives is a weekly fiction podcast. Each episode, we dive into the strange, the unknown, and the... Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at scparchives.com.